Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse exposition through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. That's probably not where we're going to begin reading, but you could turn there in the hope that we will get there eventually. I may have given you the mistaken impression last week by saying I may have, that means I did, give you the mistaken impression last week that we had finished up all the bad news and we're now going to make the transition into the good news. Well, not quite yet. There's more bad news to come. But after Paul has laid out his argument that all mankind, all human beings, are intrinsically evil, he's now going to deal with the fact that he's talking to two different audiences. He's talking to a Jewish audience, and he's talking to a Gentile audience. And a couple of times he has used the phrase, the Jew first and also the Gentile. Paul does write... It's in the book of Galatians that he writes that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, free nor bond. And so some people have said that now that we are in the New Testament, New Covenant economy, that such distinctions as Jew and Gentile have essentially disappeared. And so whenever I talk about a future for Israel or Israel being distinct from the church, People will say, no, no, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile. It says that, Jim, so you're just wrong. But 
Paul also writes, there's neither male nor female. That doesn't mean that in Christ, the male and female distinctions disappeared. Within the church, we can tell a man from a woman. Apparently, in the society, we can't anymore. (laughs) But we can tell a man from a woman. And what you're going to see this morning is that Paul, writing after the cross and the resurrection of Christ, still has to deal with the distinctions between Jew and Gentile. Now, one of the biggest distinctions between Jew and Gentile is their histories, specifically that the Jews have a 1,400-year history of dealing with God, specifically dealing with the law, whereas the Gentiles don't have that history, therefore they don't have the law. So when Paul writes, here in what we call chapter 1, when he writes that we are all guilty, the natural argument from the Jew is going to be, but we're God's chosen people. We have the prophets. We have the law. We have all those advantages. And so Paul is saying, no, the Jew is also guilty because he does have the law, which says, don't be this way, and yet you are that way, and so you're guilty. So then the Gentile is going to stand up and say, but we didn't know. We didn't have the law. Nobody told us not to be that way. So that makes us less guilty than the Jew would be, right? And Paul's going to deal with that and say, no, that actually, when it comes to the law, when it comes to circumcision, that if you are under the law and you break the law, the law is going to judge you. But if you aren't under the law, you then become, his phraseology, a law unto yourself. And your own conscience accuses or excuses you. In other words, this is standard Pauline consistent theology that if you know in your mind, if you conclude in your mind that something is a sin, that something is wrong, and then you do it anyway, that's rebellion. You've already come to the conclusion that it's wrong. And human beings just have an intrinsic sense of right and wrong. One of the big arguments between creationists and atheists is that the creationist will say, well, then where do you get your sense of morality from? If there is no ultimate good, then on what basis can you argue that there are social ethics and that there is morality behind the things you do? And the atheist will argue consistently, oh, well, that's just part of our learning to live together as a society. We have developed rules that are good for everybody, and so our morality is based in what's good for everybody. But what they're really admitting in saying that is that human beings just have a built-in awareness that some things are right and some things are wrong. Some things are good, some things are bad. And people just know that. So Paul's going to say, even though you Gentiles don't have the law, when you know that something is wrong and you do it anyway, you become the law. And therefore, you're still held guilty because your own conscience accuses you. So this is what chapter 2 is really going to be about. It's going to be about the Jew-Gentile distinction. And Paul saying again, everybody's guilty whether you've had the law or whether you're not under the law. Nevertheless, guilt resides in you. Now, chapter 2 begins with the word therefore. You can't start anything with therefore. In fact, I was tempted to come up here this morning and my opening gambit was going to be, and in conclusion, which wouldn't have worked, but it would have made the point, that you can't start anything on therefore. One of the downsides of going through a letter like the book of Romans exegetically like this, verse by verse, one of the downsides of that is eventually you start thinking of the letter as being piecemeal because you're getting parts and pieces of it. So now that we've gone through chapter 1, we're going to read the whole of chapter 1, and hopefully it will just make more sense to you now Because originally, when this letter was written and distributed to the churches, they would just stand up and read the letter. And we've taken the time to pick it apart and do all our theological wrangling. 
but I just want you to understand Paul's flow of thought and Paul's flow of argumentation. And I think this is what we're going to have to do every so often as we read through this letter and as we teach through it, we'll have to stop occasionally and just go back and read the whole thing again just to get some sense of Paul's logical flow of thoughts. You got it? So by the time we get to chapter 13 and go back and start reading from chapter 1, by then you'll, you'll kind of know what's coming. But. All right, so Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations." And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, 
God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and then do the same yourself? Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? That's how far we got last week. That kind of preaches itself now, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It makes its own point. Did you follow Paul's progress of logic? He's making sure that everybody understands that God is good, glorious, and gracious, but he's also a holy judge, and mankind across the board, Jew and Gentile, everyone is guilty. And since we know that everyone is guilty, well, then how can we judge? Because in order to judge someone else, we have to be able to sit in a higher seat than they're sitting in. We have to be more perfect than they are. We have to be more righteous than they are in order to actually judge someone else. And yet, he's just gotten done telling us we're all equally guilty. So since we are all equally guilty, nobody has the leave, the warrant, the invitation, or the power from God to judge other people. When it comes to somebody else's eternal state, that's up to God and God alone. So we'll get out there and tell the truth. We will tell people how they can be saved. We will tell people about the glories of God and the goodness of Christ. But in the end, how they respond to it, how they react, when they react, what it takes to get them saved, that's all up to God. Has anybody in this room so far, and collectively, let's say there's a couple thousand years between us all, Collectively, have we all yet saved anybody? No. 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 Despite all our efforts, despite our collective years, despite our telling the truth, it's just not up to us to do the saving. Here's an easier one. And how many of you have successfully sent someone to their condemnation? No one? No one? Well, I'm awfully glad that none of you have the ability to do that. Because there have been moments when pretty much all of you have been angry at someone. Guilty. Guilty. And if everybody here in this group had the ability to condemn someone else in this group, we would be excessively smaller as a group. (laughs) Condemnation, eternal life are up to God, not up to us. So, I like the phrase, and I've used the phrase often, you've got enough to do just dealing with you. Because you know the stuff about you that nobody else knows. 
and you can show up on Sunday in your Sunday best. Well, some of you in your Sunday best. Some of you will show up here and you got dressed and you got all cleaned up and you brushed your teeth and you combed your hair and you came in here looking just fine and ready to present to everybody and you're just scared to death that somebody somewhere is going to figure out what you're really like. <laughs> now, I can assure you, most of us here know what you're really like. We don't know the details, but we know what you're really like because you're just like us. And we know what we're like. We know our depravity. But even the depth of our depravity keeps us from knowing how genuinely depraved we are. You are not high, holy, righteous, perfect like God is. Therefore, your depravity keeps you from really genuinely knowing the distance between you and that righteous, holy God. And that righteous, holy God is a judge. And he's going to judge people. And you're people. So the righteous, holy God is going to judge you or he's going to judge a substitute in your place. This is, again, why Christianity is so vitally, vitally important. Now, after that list, which we looked at last week at the end of chapter 1, Paul is now going to deal with the Jew-Gentile distinction that I spoke of. In verse 4, he's going to continue talking about this judging thing because this was really, really common parlance between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews, as you know, thought Gentiles were dogs. They wouldn't even eat with them. And this was so ingrained in them that we read that when Peter was in Galatia with Paul, he was there eating with the Gentiles. Then some came from James, and immediately Peter dissembled and acted like he wasn't eating with the Gentiles so that he would look good to the other Jews who came from James. And Paul had to withstand him to his face because he was being a hypocrite. So this Jew-Gentile distinction was deeply ingrained in them. Even after Peter had had the episode on the housetop, even after God himself had said, don't call unclean what I have called clean, even after that, Peter's still in Galatia dissembling from the Gentiles because he doesn't want to look unclean. So, so I'm trying to give you some sense of how deeply ingrained this Jew-Gentile thing is. So the Jews were very quick to judge the Gentiles. Then the Gentiles come to faith and come into the church. It's real hard for the Jews to get over that intrinsic dislike that they have for the Jews. Meanwhile, the Gentiles have got all their pantheon of gods and they've got their various different forms of worship and they don't like the Jews because the Jews are undermining the way they worship. So there's just all this Jew-Gentile conflict going on. So Paul's writing, you're both guilty, how do you judge each other? Since you're both guilty, and then look at verse 4, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? That word kindness doesn't really express the word that Paul used our English word kind came down to us from kin. If you are related to somebody, you are kin. There's a, a restaurant right up the street, kin folks. And so it's a good southern word, kin. We still use it, but it's actually an old English word that means to be family. And if you are kinned to one another, you treat each other differently than you treat people that you're not kin to. So that word kinned entered our modern American lexicon as kind. And that's what it means. If you're being kind to somebody, you're treating them like family. But the word that Paul is using here that's translated kindness actually is a word that speaks of the excellence of the character, of the nature of God. And so it's a word that is more than just God is kind. It's God is tremendously long-suffering, God is gracious to you. God has been putting up with you for a long time because his intrinsic character 
is more excellent than ours. You get some sense of that? So then, do you think lightly of him for that? Are you willing to think, ah, oh, it's just God, you know, ah, oh, he's there, oh, he provides for me, oh, he's just, yeah, yeah, I get it, he's holy, yeah, yeah, we've heard that all before. Okay, Paul, move on. What Paul is saying is, if you judge each other, you must think lightly of God. So if you want to know why you don't judge each other, it's because that's tantamount to saying that God, the righteous holy judge, just isn't that important. And you'll think lightly of his kindness and his forbearance, which is his putting up with you, and his patience, not knowing that that kindness, that excellence of God, leads you to repentance. This is, again, a big theological issue that people argue about tremendously. It's difficult sometimes in talking to people of the more Arminian persuasion. It's difficult to convince them that faith is a gift. And yet the Bible says repeatedly that faith is a gift from God. But part of what God gives you along with that faith is the repentance. Because God is the one who brings you to the realization that you are evil and you need a savior. If you're just walking through your life and you don't know anything about God, you think you're fine. You think you're good. You think there's nothing wrong and everyone else is stupid. But you're pretty good. If you want to test that theory, put yourself behind the wheel. Get out on the highway and you know you're the only good driver out there. Everybody else is stupid. And you go through the rest of your life just kind of thinking, I'm fine, I'm fine. Then one day, if God is kind to you and he interrupts your life, for the first time in your silly little life, you will think, wait a minute, I might not be all that. In fact, when you come across Paul writing to the Philippians and saying, think of others as better than yourself, that's completely opposite to how you think. That's completely opposite to how you are. That's completely opposite to your ego and your self-centeredness. And so that is a gift of God. God is giving you the knowledge that you're sinful. Because you would never come to that conclusion by yourself. You're too egocentric to come to that conclusion. And you can again test that. All you got to do is ask people, are you a sinner? Are you evil? And people will say no and argue with you and they'll list their credits and they'll, they'll tell you that they're not that bad and they'll do all that because it's really hard for egocentric, fleshly human beings to reach the point of admitting that they got nothing, that they're sinful, that they're depraved. And yet Christian people, blood-bought, Bible-spirit-filled Christian people will admit that instantly. They'll say, yeah, yes, I'm wretched. They love the song Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me because we understand our incapability. Why do we understand that? That's a gift from God. And that's what brings us to faith. That's what brings us to the realization that we desperately need a Savior. Well, Paul is saying that right here. Do you not know that it is the very kindness, the excellency of the character of God that leads you, that guides you, that, that fences you in, that moves your footsteps, that guides your life to the point where you will recognize your own inability and you will repent and turn from yourself and your self-sufficiency to God as your Savior. And the only reason you do that it's because he gave you the ability to do it. Amen. And if he doesn't give you that ability, you won't do it. Want to prove it? Go look at the world. <laughs> this week, the state of New York decided that abortion up until birth was legal. You can carry a baby for nine months and be three days away from having that baby. And you can decide as the mother, nope, don't want it. 
That is murder. That is exactly what Paul described as not having natural affection because mothers would naturally have affection for their babies. I've been around some pregnant women in my life, and every pregnant woman I've been around loves her baby before it's born. While it's still in her stomach, she falls in love with it. That is natural affection. And there is a complete lack of natural affection to decide this baby in my womb that's been growing here for eight, nine months. I've decided I don't want it anymore. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm saying that's evil. That's intrinsically base evil. Why doesn't the governor of California... Why doesn't the governor of New York, actually either one of those works, why doesn't the governor of New York, (laughs) sorry, I cracked myself up, why doesn't the governor of New York know that that's evil? Because God didn't give him the gift of repentance. God didn't give him that sense that this is wrong. Someday he's going to have to stand in front of the judge of the universe And give account for every baby that he was responsible for killing. I I wouldn't want to be there. That's not going to be a good day. Here's my point. Paul says, if you've repented of your own way, of your own ego, of your own pride, of your own self-sufficiency, of your own righteousness, of your own justification of yourself, if you have turned from that and turned to him, that's a gift from him everything from start to finish about your relationship with God starting from your turning all the way to your glorification it's all God he does all of it you don't get to do any of it and that is such a part of Paul's theology that he says if you judge each other that is a demonstration that you take lightly the wealth the riches of God's kindness And it is that very kindness that leads you to repent of yourself and turn to him. You get it? Yes, sir. But, but, why don't people repent? Why don't people turn? Because left to themselves, they're just stubborn. Now, we wouldn't say stubborn if somebody said... uh, Somebody asked you, you know, why, why did you do something? Why won't you do something? You would say, well, because I'm strong-willed. Well, because I'm a self-made man. Well, because I'm an independent thinker. Well, because... No, God says it's because you're stubborn. And you know what the word stubborn means? It means you're stuck on yourself. And you're just going to plant your heels and not do what other people tell you to do because you're just stubborn. By the way... The animal most known for stubbornness is a donkey, a mule, King James would say, an ass. Should I apply this? I'll let that sit there. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, Okay, there's the natural man. It's God's kindness that leads you to repentance, but the natural man has an unrepentant heart. He can't turn from himself toward God. And because of that stubbornness, and because of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath. That's not bring a lunch, we're having a picnic. That's the wrath of God. And so far in your life, you have not experienced anything that begins to give you a fraction of the wrath of God. So far, what you've been is inconvenienced and uncomfortable. But you have not felt the wrath of God yet. And he just said, these folks are storing it up. They are storing up the wrath of God that is going to be poured out on them because of their unrepentance, because of their stubbornness, 
because of their ego. I'll do things I want to do. I'll do them my way. I won't do them the way anybody else tells me to do it. I'm stubborn and I'm unrepentant. And so you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. By the way, Paul's eschatology includes a day of wrath. A day when God is going to start pouring out wrath on the planet. That's why it's very good news that Paul also writes that we, the church, we, the blood-bought, we, the spirit-filled, I love the phrase, are not appointed to wrath. The same way that we are appointed to eternal life, we are not appointed to wrath. Why? Because of the intercessor because of the kindness of God, because of the patience and the forbearance and the putting upness of God, and because he let his son be a substitute in our place, we are not appointed to the wrath of God. But there are people, unrepentant people, people with dark, unrepentant hearts and stubbornness who are storing up that wrath. In the day of the wrath and the revelation, the unveiling, the apocalypsis of God. And it is the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Notice that it is not just random justice. It's righteous justice. Because again, just have to keep stressing this. God, high, holy, righteous, perfectly just, without sin, Absolute Lord and Master, time, space, and reality, completely in control, omnipotent, sovereign. You, what do you got compared to that? Bloody rags. Bloody rags. That's the distance between you and him. And if he doesn't do for you what you would never do for yourself, it's just not going to get done. But because of your stubbornness, And your unrepentant heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And then Paul very specifically reaches back into Psalm 62 to show that this is not some new revelation. This is what's been around forever. He quotes, who will render to every man according to his deeds? God is a judge, the righteous and the unjust will be judged by God. Verse 7. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, they'll receive eternal life. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Notice the word perseverance there. That means to continue in it, to keep doing it. In other words, you never reach the point where you're all paid up. You never reach the point where you say, you know, I've been pretty good for the last 40 years. I can probably coast now. Perseverance means continuing in it. And you continue in this doing good, not so that you're earning your salvation. He's already declared that it is God who gives you the repentance and the faith and the salvation. But because you are saved, you continue in this because you are seeking glory, honor, and immortality. What a nice combination of words. I am seeking glory, honor, and immortality. According to Pauline thinking, it's not enough to hope that you just sneak into heaven by the skin of your teeth. You ever heard the song? It's a song old song that says if you get to heaven before I do you know the next line drill a hole in the wall and pull me through Yeah, that's, that's not the way it's described in the Bible it is not whoo, just barely made it wow just, whoa, that was close no he says if you're filled with the spirit of God if you're aware of who God is and who you are that you've got to know that the salvation that an almighty God proffers for you is a salvation of glory and of honor and of eternal life. It can't get better than what God would give you. So he uses these wonderful words to explain what salvation is. Salvation is a whole lot more than just 
Man, that was close. I'm glad I didn't go into outer darkness. That was, whew, man. It's more than that. It's God glorifying you and honoring you. that, That phrase I find just astounding, the idea that we're going to have honor. In what way are we going to have honor? I heard a preacher many years ago say, and I think this applies. Otherwise, I wouldn't be saying it, by the way. So. He said, in what way was John the Baptist the greatest of all men who ever lived? Since Jesus said John the Baptist was the greatest of, born of woman, in what way was he the greatest? And it was because of who he was announcing. That was the thing that made him so great. He was the forerunner of Christ, and it was his association with Christ that made him the greatest of men. I like that explanation. I thought that was good. In what way are we going to have honor? We're going to be in heaven eternally as trophies of grace, proclaiming the goodness and grace of Christ. Our place of honor is that we're going to be associated with Christ. It's an honorable thing we're getting because we are the testimony to the full sufficiency of the perfect Savior, Christ. And that's a tremendous honor because there are also people he's going to skip right over. But he has decided that you are going to be with him eternally in the glory that only he deserves. And you're going to participate in that as testimony to his goodness and grace and kindness and majesty and glory and sovereignty. Well, that's a tremendous amount of honor that he's allowing you to have. You see, this Christian thing is not just some kind of uh, encroachment that God has put on you. Sometimes Christianity is represented, especially by people who are not Christian, People will represent Christianity as, wow, that's kind of a drag. You can't do things. You can't go to parties, and you can't dance, and you can't smoke, and you can't, you know, just whatever their thing is. They just want to say that Christianity is a bunch of do's and don'ts, and you're obligated to do the don'ts. Do the don'ts. You're obligated to the don'ts. You're obligated to have no fun in this lifetime because you're Christian. It's not the way Paul sees it. Paul sees this lifetime as you storing up the wrath of God or through Christ you get the incredible honor of being in his presence eternally as trophies to his goodness and grace. It's a tremendous honor. And if you know that, if you know that that's your goal, well, now you can persevere. Now you can continue on in walking the way that Christians ought to walk. And it's not that you're being cheated out of anything. You're actually being given a whole lot of things that you wouldn't otherwise have. It's just that you don't get them all right here, right now. So you persevere in doing good because you're seeking glory and honor and immortality. So you receive eternal life. But there are people who would love that verse to stop right there. People who are universalists who believe that God is ultimately going to save absolutely everybody, including Satan himself. Everybody's going to have equal eternal life and immortality and, and goodness throughout all time or else God just couldn't be happy. Paul is arguing that God is such a judge that he's going to judge the good and the evil in verse 8. But to those who are selfishly ambitious, says the NASB, to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not honor and obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, will they get wrath and indignation. Now, this essentially, what he just confirmed, that God is going to be a judge of everybody. He's going to judge their works. To those who persevere in good works, they're going to get eternal life. To those who pursue selfish ambition and don't obey the truth, but they obey unrighteousness, they're going to get wrath and indignation. That's the whole Old Testament. That's what we know already going in. The Jewish audience would know all that because that's exactly what the law says. But the Gentiles wouldn't know that. 
To the Gentiles, that's new information. There's only one God. There's not a whole pantheon of gods. And that one God who does exist is also a judge, and he's going to judge absolutely everybody. And you start out behind the eight ball. You start out already evil and guilty. So then anybody who receives honor and glory, it has to be that God who does that for them because it is his goodness, his excellence of character that leads you to repentance, that brings you to the faith, that leads you to eternal life. You getting Paul's argument? Okay. Have I dissected that adequately? Have I over-talked that? I like what you say. Well, okay then. Because I'm going to keep saying it. (laughs) Verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There it is. Now he's making the real clear separation. Everyone who does evil, whether you're a Jew and you're a descendant of Abraham, whether you've had the law, the prophets, the oracles, whether you've had all that, whether you've had Moses, whether you've had all that, nevertheless, if you're evil, if you do evil, if you suppress righteousness, nevertheless, you're going to be judged. If you're a Gentile and you didn't have the law and you didn't have the prophets and you don't have all that history, but you do evil, you're going to be judged. God is going to judge and there's going to be tribulum. There's going to be thalipsis. There's going to be a weeding and a sorting out through the trials and the troubles. There's going to be tribulation and distress for every soul of man. Notice that phrase. Not just for the man, but for his spirit, for his eternal being. There's going to be distress and tribulation of every man who does evil, regardless if you're a Jew or a Greek. But, verse 10, but there will be glory and honor and peace. I keep accentuating that word peace because if you are as evil as Paul has just described you, and if God is as glorious, righteous, and holy as Paul has already described him to be, then there's just no way that you, the sinner, and God, the glorious Holy One, can ever be at peace. There will always be againstness between you two. There will always be trouble, trials, tribulum between you two. Because you're not capable of being good enough to please or obligate or impress that God. So there's always going to be trouble there. And yet Paul, in every letter he writes yanks out that phrase, grace and peace. He loves that word because there's grace from God, and once there's grace from God, there's finally a ceasing of that againstness between you and God. And so he writes that there will be glory, there will be honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. So this whole judgment scenario that he's been laying out, that God is going to judge every man's works, he's going to try everyone, and to those who persevere in being and doing, pursuing the good and the righteous, whether they're Jew or Gentile, they're going to receive the reward. And regardless if you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you're evil, if you hold down, if you suppress righteousness, then you're going to be judged by God Jew or Greek, because you're evil. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's leveling the playing field. He's saying it doesn't matter which side of this divide you're on, Jew or Gentile, the real divide is between righteous and evil. And God is going to judge accordingly. Because, verse 11, because there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned Without the law will also perish without the law. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Gentiles. He said, okay, your argument's going to be, but but nobody told us. We didn't have the law. We didn't get a Moses. I was worshiping Diana. I didn't know any better. 
so how can you possibly hold me guilty since nobody ever told me and his argument is if you have sinned anyway even though you don't have the law you're still going to perish you're still going to be judged you're still going to be cast into outer darkness despite the fact that you don't have the law now, in a moment, he's going to explain that a little deeper, like I said earlier, and he's going to say that you become a law unto yourself. If you don't have a law, the very fact that you know what's right, what's wrong, then if you think that something is sin and you do it anyway, that's rebellion. There is a sin that theologians talk about, that even David talked about, keep me from presumptuous sin. That means that you just presume that God is going to forgive you. God's going to make up for this, or God doesn't see it, or you've done it in the dark. You know it's wrong. You know it's wrong the minute you got there. But you do it anyway because you just presume on God. And that presumption is sin because you knew it was wrong going in, and you did it anyway. So even if you don't have the law to tell you specifically, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, it can actually come into anything. Here, I'll give you an example. And I'm just picking a random example here. I'm trying to think of something that's not in the Bible. Smoking's not in the Bible. So smoking in and of itself, bad idea, dumb, don't do it. It's like, hey, I think I want cancer sooner. You know, don't, just don't do it. But is it a sin? Depends on the person doing it. Now, I know that some people will argue, well, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and therefore smoking becomes a sin against the temple of the body of the Holy Spirit. But I could make the same argument for sugar. <laughs> so if somebody is smoking and their conscience doesn't convict them about it, it's dumb, it's a bad idea, but I think it falls under the category of Paul saying, there is no law against me. He says, not everything's expedient, not everything is smart, not everything's a good idea, but as far as the law is concerned, there's, there's no law against me. So let's say that somebody realizes one day, you know, smoking is in fact hurting my body, which I do believe is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, it is actually wrong for me to smoke. Well, then the next cigarette is sin. You get the idea? You get the picture? Okay, that, that's the essence of what Paul is saying, that just because you don't have the law, that doesn't excuse you because your own conscience will accuse you or excuse you. Here's the argument. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Okay, there's distinction. Jew-Gentile distinction. Those who have the law will be judged by the law. Those who are not under the law are going to be judged despite the fact that they're not under the law. Well, how does that work? I mean, I can see judging the Jews, you've told them what to do and not to do. And then it's outward rebellion against the law for them to do and not do the things that they choose to do instead of the things you told them to do. Okay, fair enough. But how do you judge the Gentiles under that situation considering that they haven't been told? Paul knows that, so he's now going to answer that question. Verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. In other words, that's a continuation of the statement, all who have sinned under law will be judged by the law because not only the hearers of the law are just before God, it is the doers of the law who will be justified. So just hearing it, just going to synagogue and hearing somebody tell you the law isn't enough. You have to actually do the law. Uh, this road out here, um, Hazelwood. Hazelwood. 
Okay, what's the speed limit on Hazelwood? 30. 30. Oh, oh no. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so now we all know that. We all know that, right? We know that collectively as a group now. Speed limit, 30. There you go. It's 30 right there. Now you know. Okay. Can a cop get you and write you a ticket based on whether you know that or not? No. Yes. No. no. I mean, he can't stop you and say, do you just randomly know the speed limit on Hazelwood? Oh, no, sir. But he can write you a ticket when you don't do it. So it's not enough to just hear it, because we all just heard it. But I guarantee when we leave this parking lot, most of you are going to break that law. Right? Yeah. Can a cop write you a ticket? Yeah, absolutely. Why? Because you broke that law. It's not enough to just know it. You got to do it. You get my example? Okay, it wasn't enough to just hear the 613 rules. It wasn't enough to just hear the Ten Commandments and say, we are the people of God who have been given all these rules. Hearing it was not enough. You had to actually do it. And since nobody did it, Everybody's guilty by it. Everybody who's under the law is going to be judged by the law. They're going to be accused by that standard, and they didn't live up to it. Guilty. Now, again, the Gentile audience would say, yeah, right, get those Jews. Yeah, they're the ones who had the law, and they're not doing it. Verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law unto themselves. So Paul's argument is, they don't have the specifics of the law, but here we'll test it real quick. How many folks in here have ever committed murder? I didn't mean my hand to be up. I was just, it was a demonstration right there. How many people here have committed murder? Nobody? Okay, so by not committing murder, by not killing, have you all kept the Sixth Commandment? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Sixth Commandment says don't kill. None of you have killed. There, you kept the law. But did you keep the law because you knew it was in the law, or did you just simply not kill? No, you just simply didn't kill. And so you've become a law unto yourself. You've gone through your whole life not killing because you know intrinsically that killing is wrong, except in the state of New York. You know that killing is wrong, and therefore you just haven't killed. But if you were to go against your own conscience and knowledge that killing is wrong and decide to kill somebody, you have now gone against your own conscience and your own reality, your own morality, and therefore... That becomes sin, and you're going to be judged by the fact that you knew it was wrong and you did it anyway. You got that? Now, I went for an absurd example there. I went all the way to killing. But think about the day-to-day -day stuff. Think about how you treat your brethren, how you treat other people, how you treat your husband and wife, how you treat your kids, how you treat your parents, how you treat your parents, how you, tre how you treat your parents. Think about... Just think about the day-to-day -day way that you live in the course of a day. You are constantly making right-wrong judgments. Your morality kicks in on a regular basis through the day, and you are making judgments of right, wrong, good, and bad. And then, if you do the bad, even though you knew it was the bad, well, then that becomes sin for you, because you've become a law unto yourself. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or excusing them is the King James. The NASB says accusing 
or else defending them. So it is your thoughts, it is your conscience, it is your morality, it is your sense of ethics that determines what you do and how you react to the situations of life. And when you work against that intrinsic morality inside yourself, you become a law unto yourself that you will be judged by. So just saying, I wasn't told, I didn't have the law, I didn't get a Moses, God's got you dead to rights anyway. So there again, Jew or Gentile, whoever you are, if you're a human being, you're guilty. You're guilty either way, which means you need a Savior either way. Here's our last verse for this morning. Their conscience is going to accuse or excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Now, that can be a scary verse, because if you're going to be judged, you're going to be judged by Christ Jesus, and that day is coming. That's an intrinsic part of what he preaches, is that the day of judgment is coming. The day of God's wrath is coming. The day of the revelation of God, it's coming. And so God is going to judge you according to whether you're under the law or whether by your conscience, either way, he's going to judge you and you're going to be guilty. But the positive way to read that verse, and I like the positive way more, is on that day when all that wrath is pouring out, according to my euangelion, which does mean good news, according to my good news, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. There's the good news. I don't want my secrets exposed. That's why I call them secrets. I don't want people to know what I'm really like. And either do any of you. You go through your whole life, as I said earlier, hoping that nobody really figures out what you're really like because they probably run away screaming from you. You don't want to be openly exposed before other men. If we... I've used this example so many times, but if we were able to project your thought life up on the big screen, I'm, I'm pointing behind me like there's a big screen behind me for some reason, but, but if we were able to project your thought life, Bertrill, up here on the screen, would you be comfortable with Jennifer seeing it? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I just picked Jennifer because I look. Would you be comfortable with Micah seeing it? Uh, no. Yeah. How about Tom? He's a nice guy. <laughs> None of us are going to be comfortable with that kind of exposure. Well, that's what God's going to do. Every thought, every deed, every intention of your heart, every missed opportunity, it's all going to be exposed, and he's going to judge you for you, or... He's going to judge you in Christ Jesus. He's going to judge your secrets in Christ Jesus. And if you're firmly in Christ and Christ is in you, none of that counts against you. And wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great at some point, Bertrill, once we put it up on the board? Wouldn't it be great to be able to look at Tom and go, nah, 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 nah. I mean, you, you can't do anything to me. I've been utterly completely forgiven I've been utterly completely washed I've been made completely righteous I'm in a place of honor and I've been glorified with eternal life you can't touch me that's where you want to be when the judgment part hits when your secrets are revealed you want to be in Christ Jesus Amen. you don't want to have to answer for everything that is you Right? right? All right, we're getting closer. We're working our way toward Paul saying, here's the answer. But he just wants to make sure that everybody understands their guilt. Generally, because of our general evil and depravity, and then breaking it down to Jew-Gentile, with or without the law, everybody is guilty and everybody can be judged by the righteous and holy God and no one is going to have any standing with him. That is why the good news is such very, very good news.
Got it? Questions? We're good? All right. Say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.